So I'm going to be looking at Proverbs. Uh, We're going to sing a song in just a minute, but I'm going to read two passages, and I will come to these two passages during my homily or sermon, if you want to call it that. And so the first is in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16. I want to read verses 1 through 7. That's By the way, that's page uh, 539. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, but I will focus for most of the sermon on verse 5. Proverbs 16. Verse 5 is where I'm going to focus. But let me read verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to go from there. We're going to go over to 1 Peter 5. So here we go. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And now we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It's page 1016 in that blue Bible. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. And Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's stand and sing hymn number 353. Your word to, to think on what you have to say, both in Proverbs and 1 Peter. And especially as we go toward installing uh, Peter again as an elder. And, and, and Hal and John and Matt... Um, as deacons, we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And so I really want to begin with uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. You may think I'm off my rocker, and I am, but that's okay. You know, it's not a popular topic to speak against. You see, it's the trait, it's a trait that our society, one of the traits that our society holds as one of its respectable sins. It can get you voted into public office if you have enough of it. It promotes you to CEO of a company. It helps junior officers to make their way up the chain of command. Sometimes it assists husbands to win dominance in their homes, and sometimes it helps wives to get their way. 
It is often touted as what it means to love oneself in modern self-help parlance. And it builds churches. Or at least it adds larger numbers to religious organizations and fellowships. In fact, I can say from years of experience, it lingers in the shadows just behind the doors and just around the corners in many ecclesiastical establishments. I'm talking about pride. I'm talking about arrogance. And so it's not a popular topic to speak against, but today as we're installing, as we look at installing an elder and some deacons, I'm going to address it because we need to hear it. Now, I recognize this could all backfire, trust me. Because, you know, when you point a finger at someone, there's three more pointing back, and very likely one of you or two of you or maybe more will say, Mike, have you looked in the mirror recently? Right? It's possible it may backfire also because it may, be, it may feel like and be misunderstood as if I'm targeting someone, but I'm actually not targeting someone. I'm targeting a temptation that is lurking in probably every one of our hearts. And so... I'm going to take the plunge. Here we go. You see the three points. Arrogance, abomination, archetype. That's the three points. Maybe it's not on the back of the worship guide. I probably forgot to put it there. But there it is. Arrogance, abomination, and archetype. So arrogance. Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Arrogance. St. Augustine, in his huge, seminal work, The City of God, which took him like 10 to 14 years to write, maps out in that big tome of a work, he maps out salvation history, among many other things. And so he describes, at one point in the book, he's describing Adam and Eve in the garden. And he addresses the fall, and so he explains that Adam and Eve fell because their will had been perverted before they acted. So before they acted out their disobedience, their will had already been perverted, as St. Augustine puts it. And so what was it that perverted their will? He goes to say this. What is the origin of our evil will but pride? What is the origin of our evil will but pride? Now whether we agree or not with Augustine that this happened before their actions or whatever, it's still a telling observation because I think he's right that pride, whether it was the original sin or not, at least was on board the ship really, really quick, right? Pride was there almost immediately. And so I think it's right to think about pride. Augustine diagnoses pride as, quote, the craving of undue exaltation. When the soul abandons God to whom it ought to cleave as its end abandons God who is, who, to whom it ought to cleave as its chief end in all of life and even in death, right? That's what he means there. So when the soul abandons God to whom it ought to cleave as its end, it becomes a kind of end in itself. The proud soul then becomes its own satisfaction and falls away from the unchangeable good, God the unchangeable good, falls away from the unchangeable good which ought to satisfy it more than itself. And so then Augustine goes on and he shows how pride often, when it is called out, when it is actually hammered on, when it's actually pointed out, 
that pride will, quote, cast about for the shelter of an excuse, even in manifest sins. Pride seeks to refer its wickedness to another, end of quote. I call that blame shifting. I was telling Neil the other day that's one of the things I noticed very, very quickly. It took me years to figure out, but that's a good rule of thumb when there's lots of blame shifting. It tells you that no matter what else is being said, there's a problem in the heart. I can't own up to the fact that I did wrong. You know, Hal, if you hadn't been a you-know-what, then I wouldn't have done that, right? That's blame shifting, right? That's the kind of thing. And so when pride gets exposed, it immediately shifts the blame. It's because it's your fault. I did those things. You're misunderstanding me. You misread it. And so pride, in pride, I am my own satisfaction. I am my own goal. And then when I get found out, I shift the blame and it's all your fault in some way. Now there are more traits that support pride, such as the trait of entitlement. Thinking thinking that all of my wants and desires should be oughts and musts. Thinking all of my wants and desires really should be musts and oughts. Because I deserve them. I'm entitled to them. My friends, when you see that going on in leadership of any kind, it's, it's really ugly. But when it goes on in Christian leadership, and it's gone on enough that it's been broadcast and brought out and exposed for the last about 10 years, you're starting to see more and more cases where it's being exposed. When it shows up in Christian leadership, it is devastating. It's horrible. And so notice it's an arrogance of heart. Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to to the Lord. I appreciate it the way Solomon writes that because it later on goes right along with what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 15. When Jesus said, where do every eat, what defiles a man? It's not what comes from the outside. It's what swells up from the heart. And then he goes in and talks about evil thoughts and thefts and adulteries, etc. All this swells up from inside. And what that reminds us then is that arrogance is that er- starts in the heart. It's no, there's no blame shifting allowed. I can't say it's your fault. It's my own fault. And the arrogant don't like to hear that and don't usually agree with that. Arrogance of heart, where it originates and from which it grows, comes out of the heart. James mentions this a little bit. When he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives, uh, brings for, uh, gives birth to sin. Then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so no blame shifting is allowed. And so arrogance of heart, everyone who is arrogant of heart, is an abomination to the Lord. But now we have to ask a question that moves us to our second point. How does God see arrogance? I mean, that's the right question to ask. How does God see arrogance? How does God see pride? And that's in this verse as well. Everyone who's arrogant of heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured he will not go unpunished. The Hebrew word abomination is toavah, toavah. It's not used very often in the scriptures, 39 books of the Old Testament that are all in Hebrew. 
Uh, that's a lot of books, by the way, and a lot of ink. And in that, it's used only about 65 times. Abomination. Now, it gets, other words get translated as abomination sometimes, but tovah is the main word. And you may think, well, that's a pretty stiff word. It is, but let me put it in con- some context so you will see how reprehensible this is. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, God is telling his people the kind of lifestyle and social actions that the Canaanites do that is bringing judgment upon them, and he focuses specifically on sexual sins. He goes through a whole list about incest, and he goes through a whole list of, about adultery and uh, bestiality, that's relations with a beast, and so forth. But he never uses the word toavah until he gets down to Leviticus 18.22. A man who lies with a man is toavah to Yahweh. And then he steps back, and at the end, he characterizes all of these sexual sins as toavah, abominable. It's interesting, the one sin he targets is a man who lies with a man is with a woman. That's toavah. And then he gets bigger and shows all these sexual sins are toavah. My friends, that's significant. That tells you what arrogance of heart smells like, looks like to the Lord. It may, it may get you a promotion at work. It may get you put into public office. But it brings you into the wrong position with the Lord. It's toavah. It's abominable reprehensible to the Lord. And so then, no matter how much it is favored in society, arrogance of heart is an abomination to Yahweh, just as abominable, just as abominable as is a man lying with a man with a woman, just as is sexual immorality. In fact, there are very few sins in Scripture, very, very, very few sins in Scripture that God specifically targets in a singular way. Almost always, if one is brought out, you've heard me say this before, if one is brought out to be looked at, it gets immediately dropped back into the dirty laundry basket with all the rest of the filthy linen, right? There's very few sins that God specifically targets, but it's interesting that pride, arrogance, is one of them. In James chapter 4 and in 1 Peter 5, you heard it in 1 Peter 5, where both James and Peter are summarizing a principle that comes all the way through Proverbs, they both say God opposes whom? The proud. It's one of the few times in Scripture it tells you a group of people that God opposes. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's one of the few sins that God zeroes in on and targets in a singular way. And both James and Peter tell us it is a special sin that God targets. The one who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to Yahweh. And so be assured, he will not go unpunished. It would be bad news if I ended the sermon right there, wouldn't it? My friends, we need to turn and look at the archetype and maybe it will help us to realize why arrogance and pride is so abominable to the Lord and why he opposes pride. It's 
So we look at the archetype, and we're going to spend a little bit more time here, not much longer, but a little time in 1 Peter 5. There's a, a video that a Christian counselor named Diane Langberg, and I hope to show it next week for our adult Sunday school class. It's a video that she did. She has specialized in trauma and Christians that have gone through war-torn trauma and so forth. But she also specializes in spiritual abuse. She doesn't do it herself, hopefully, but she specializes in actually exposing it and talking about how do you deal with it, okay? And she's a counselor. She's really not looking at shaming people as much as here's what we need to see, broad term, and here's how we deal with those things. And she says this in a video she did back in 2016, Narcissism and the System It Breeds. She says this about, a narciss- about the narcissist, that's a, somebody who's very eaten up with himself with pride. She says, quote, he has many gifts, but the gift of humility. And in that video, she's pointing out how Christian churches are often enamored with men who are gifted, that we forget sometimes to really examine character. He has many gifts, except for the gift of humility. I think that's very observant. And so we need to ask, what is humility? If God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? we need to ask what humility is, and that would take a whole other sermon, so let me get very, very quick here as best I can. But Romans 12, verse 3 is a good example uh, of a description where Paul says to us, he says, to not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment. Not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment. I think that's a good indication of humility. It's not beating ourselves down, not looking on our, down on ourselves. That's not humility. That could actually be a false humility and an exhibition of pride. But it's actually thinking with sober judgment, not more highly than we ought, but with sober judgment. And so notice here in 1 Peter 5 how humility surfaces as Peter is describing church leadership You hear it right in the middle of the not-but language there that begins in verse 2 and runs through verse 3. It's the last not-but. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example, being examples to the flock. Notice how that the, the Christian leaders are to exhibit that, to exhibit a sense of humility, not demanding and demeaning obedience that is blind or whatever, not ham-fisted thuggery, you'll do it my way because I'm the pastor or whatever. It's leading by example for the flock. Not domineering over those in your charge, but setting an example to the flock. I think that's significantly important. And so then, as he goes on in this passage and He's still focusing primarily, I know, on elders, but this fits also with deacons as well, who are also examples of how we're to be when it comes to leading our congregation. And though he's focusing primarily on elders in this passage, notice that he gets down to the rest of us when you get down to verse 5, 6, 7, and so forth. Notice what he says. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for, right? For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is to be the key, is to be the trademark, to be the trait that shows up and is most known by God's people. That's why Peter goes on to say, 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Now, why is that important? My friends, that's our Lord Jesus. Think of Philippians chapter 2 and how Paul puts it. He says, you know, when he tells us, he says, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let, uh, let each of us have this, this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation or emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in likeness as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One of the reasons why God opposes the proud is because it is completely anti-Christ. It is totally the opposite of God himself. And so that's why we also, in any Christian leadership, in anything we're doing, Sunday school teachers, women's ministry, deacons, elders, pastoring, whatever, that's why we should be opposed to pride and arrogance being, and, and, and acting it out and thinking about it, right? Let me put it to you a different way. When I'm doing pre-marriage classes, I always tell the young couple, I always ask the young couple, especially if there's a Presbyterian in the mix, I say, what's the chief end of your marriage? And all the Presbyterians know. Ready? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right, so what's the chief end of, women's, of you being in women's ministry? To glorify God. Say it with me. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What's the chief end of you being a Sunday school teacher? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief end of your deaconing? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief end of your being an elder? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Wes, what's the chief end of us being pastors? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the total opposite of pride. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for Your, your, your Son, Jesus Christ, who in His gift of life for us, his death on our behalf exhibited this humility for us and for our salvation. Lord, forgive us when arrogance has loomed large in our hearts and sometimes been sneaky in our hearts. Forgive us. You are right to oppose the proud, but thank you that you give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, may we all be humble and exhibit this humility. And for all of our elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and women's ministry leaders, Lord, I pray that especially we would lead the way in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.